This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. People who are shocked at the speed and the drama of the changes around us. And what we're seeing now is is really the final dominoes falling in a process that's been going on for, for several hundred years. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined by my friend, James Dolezal. James, how are you? Great, Jonathan. It's good to be here. And we are joined by another mutual friend, a uh, podcaster extraordinaire, uh, but as you know, for his day job, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, Dr. Carl Truman. Carl, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, John and James. Thanks for having me on. We are delighted to have you on. We'd always love to have you on for any reason, but in particular, we want to discuss your new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I, I, it is not an exaggeration for me to say at the outset that I think this is going to be a highly significant book. James and I were talking about it right before you came on. Um, and so we want to go through it sort of bit by bit and give our, our listeners some sense of what you're trying to argue here in this volume. And I want to begin actually with, with the very start in the introduction, because I thought it was a provocative introductory illustration. You talk about a phrase, actually a phrase that oddly enough doesn't strike any of us as strangely as it should. Uh, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And you, you will go on to say to your grandfather, who died, I believe, in the 90s, this would have been unintelligible. But to each of us, and probably to all our listeners, it at least has the ring of something we've heard. So uh, talk, talk a little bit about that. I am a woman trapped in a man's body and how that even that phrase should, should create for us all kinds of interesting philosophical questions. Yeah, well, that that was in, in part the origin of the book. I, I became intrigued some years ago as to how that particular phrase had become plausible, and not just plausible to, we might say, the usual suspects, you know, the, the deconstructionist, the post-structuralist, et cetera, et cetera, in seminars at Ivy League universities, but to the ordinary man or woman in the street, uh, that in the space of 30 years, a sentence that, as you rightly point out, my grandfather would have regarded as utterly incoherent, has come to, if not make sense to everybody, at least have a plausibility to it. It doesn't shock us in the way that it might have done 50 years ago. So I wanted to get at, at, at how that happens. And of course, that's in some sense a complicated question because it's, it's not as simple, therefore, as saying, well, let's look at how gender theory arises. Let's look at the works of Judith Butler, trace the intellectual antecedents of Judith Butler, and, and we've solved the problem. That doesn't explain how ordinary people, the people we live next door to, the people we meet in the supermarket, it doesn't explain how ordinary people, the non-intellectual elites, if you like, have come to regard that statement as, as being a plausible one. And the other strand is, of course, the statement is more than just plausible. Uh, it's highly politically charged now as well, to the extent that if you deny the validity of that statement, 
uh, as J.K. Rowling did fairly recently, uh, you can expect a huge backlash. It's not just that you're disagreeing with somebody over uh, a statement of no real political consequence whatsoever. You're actually striking uh, a point of deep social and political consequence. So the, the other strand of the book is I wanted to find out why does transgenderism uh, and the broader question, why does sex become so political to the point that, you know, as Joe Biden said, uh, you know, transgender rights are the, the big human rights issue of our day. How does that come about? So that was the, the sort of the dual focus or the dual motivation behind, behind the book as I, as I constructed it. Yeah, and to underscore that point, that it's a striking observation that this isn't just a metaphysical statement that might not have seemed plausible 30 years ago and today does. It, it's, it's a, it is a power play in a sense. And, and that stands in contrast to the way some people even think about spiritual concerns or religious concerns. They might talk about my private religious views. And that's sort of in a box on the side. But when you talk about something like this, sexuality, it suddenly becomes very public and highly charged. Yes. Uh, I mean, it is. Uh, well, there are other issues out there like race, for example, that also have a very significant political charge at the moment. But one would have to say sexual identity is one of the big political issues at the moment, will continue to be, I think, for many years to come. And as you rightly point out, has certainly reached a, a point within the political consciousness of the world in which we live that it it trumps religious freedoms it trumps you know the privileged place of religion now such that we see with uh, the cake baker case for example uh, the the idea that religious freedom can somehow give you immunity on these issues is proving to be highly equivocal. And of course, the cake baker issue was ultimately decided really on the issue of artistic expression, not on religious freedom. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a shocking scenario. And I think for Christians, and not just Christians, but I think probably for religious conservatives generally, uh, same in the Jewish community, and I would imagine the same in the Muslim community as well, the kind of way that this issue is pressing in on traditional notions of free exercise is, is quite worrying. And again, part of the concern in the book was to try to explain to people who are shocked at the speed and the drama of the changes around us, try to explain to them how these changes are deep-seated and long-standing. And what we're seeing now is, is really the final dominoes falling in a process that's been going on for, for several hundred years. Just a quick follow-up at, at a broad scale, because Carl, most of your uh, scholarly work has been done in historical theology or or the history of ideas. And you talked about this affecting the, the average person, your neighbor next door, so to speak, rather than being uh, just a highly academic discussion. So, so why, uh, from a big picture perspective, why is it that we need to understand all this uh, somewhat highly academic stuff in order to make sense of the neighbor next door. And, and how does that relate to even the work you've done in history? I'll take the latter part of that question first. All I've done in this book really is applied, for want of a better term, techniques 
that I use for analyzing the way people think, in particular historical epochs, I've simply moved forward a couple of hundred years. Instead of working in the 16th and 17th centuries, I've been working in the, the 18th to the 20th century in this book. And I've always taken the view that a good historian should be able to, to use good historical methods in any particular period where, where you ask them to work. So uh, on that issue, I, I don't see this work as methodologically a major break or, or switch from, from earlier concerns. To go to the, the why is it important to, to understand uh, why these changes are taking place, I think there are numerous reasons why that's the case. One, particularly for Christians, I think it's important to understand what we're up against at this point. Uh, it, can, it can appear that the world is flying out of control, but I think if we, if we contextualize what's going on, we can actually see that, no, this is part of a process. It's not that everything was chugging along quite happily and all of a sudden everything's breaking down. I think, no, we can actually see this is part of a, a broad historical movement. So if you like, that sort of relativizes the crisis for us somewhat. Secondly, well, I guess you could also say it amplifies it, right? Because it means that it, it's not just a matter of overturning a Bergefell. This yeah. is several hundred years of intellectual history. Oh, yes. And I think on that front, it, it helps us as Christians have an appropriately modest vision of what can be achieved in the near future. It's not just a question of voting for the right president or getting the Supreme Court to set the right precedent. Uh, there are huge forces at work in society that a mere president or a mere Supreme Court judgment cannot reverse single-handedly. There are, there are deep issues here. Secondly, I think from a Christian perspective, it's important to realize that we're actually complicit in this narrative in many ways. Take just a small strand of it, the Concerns about gay marriage. Well, one of the things I argue in the book, building off the work of uh, Robbie George, Sharif Gurgis, and, and Ryan Anderson, is that actually marriage is redefined uh, in, 1980, in 1970 when no-fault divorce is signed into law by the governor of California, Ronald Reagan. That is the formal recognition of kind of expressive individualist marriage, where marriage is to be made and broken simply on the basis of whether it suits the emotional needs and concerns of the contracting parties. How many churches, how many churches have taken a stand on unbiblical divorces? Uh, and I think when, when you start to think about things that way, it helps the church not adopt an automatically pharisaic stance. You know, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like these Obergefell versus Hodges kind of people over here. No, hopefully the narrative will inject a certain modesty into the Christian community in terms of realizing we're actually complicit uh, with what is going on here. Uh, and thirdly, I think the book will hopefully help Christians, for want of a better word, apologetically, in that we need to realize how the world thinks in order to answer, address, refute the kind of questions and answers that the church that the world is posing to us. And one of the big things in the book is that the sexual revolution is not about behavior. Christians tend to think of, of sex in terms of what we do and which actions are acceptable and which are unacceptable. I think one of the big things that uh, emerges from my book is that, no, the way the world thinks about sex is sex is what you are. And that really changes the kind of discussion you're involved in with non-Christians or with people steeped in that kind of thinking, whether they're your own kids or whether they're your neighbor. 
Carl, to circle back to something Jonathan brought up earlier, why, why is it that we can't, you know, as they used to say, leave well enough alone and just say that's a private view and, you know, whatever your deviancies may be within your heart, each of us struggle with our own. Why can't you keep it to yourself? Why is this a public or a political issue at all? Why does it need public affirmation? Uh, you know, a libertarian might just say, you know, leave, uh, leave everyone alone, leave us all to ourselves, a kind of radical individualism. But this yeah. isn't, what you're describing isn't radical individualism. Um, it, it's, it, it's individualism, but it needs, it needs public consensus and affirmation. Why is that? Yeah, well, in, in dealing with that, I, I found the thought of Charles Taylor very helpful on this front. In, in Taylor, building off the, the German philosopher Hegel, has uh, a central place for the notion of recognition in how he thinks about human selfhood and identity. And the thing about human beings is, you know, we want to be free, but we also want to belong. And uh, for me to be truly me, for me to be truly authentically me, uh, on the one hand, I want to feel that I'm the agent of my own identity. I want to be able to express myself outwardly uh, as I feel inwardly. And we tend to think of identity in those terms. We tend to think of our identity as something of a monologue. I am who I want to be. But Taylor points out it's more complicated than that. Uh, it's not enough to be who you want to be. We actually need others to recognize us as who we are. We need to fit in in some way. And if you have a society that, that doesn't recognize certain identities, then those people are left feeling well, they're left with a choice. Either they can fit into the range of identities that society does accept, or they can feel alienated, inauthentic, prevented from being themselves. And the thing about the, the sexual revolution is it places sexual desire right at the heart of, of how we think of ourselves, of how we think of our identity. That requires for us to be fully authentic people, not only that we can express our sexual identity outwardly, but that others recognize that expression, recognize those desires as legitimate. This is why you know, tolerance was never going to be enough in terms of the LGBTQ movement, because tolerance says there's a place for you to be who you want to be, but we don't have to approve of it. We don't have to acknowledge that as a legitimate identity. That does not really give space for somebody who is convinced that their sexual identity or their sexual desires define their identity. It doesn't really give them space to be both free and to belong. They, and need, they need you to say the pronoun, to use, yeah. the, to use the chosen words or, or monikers. Yes. It's why you know, if, you, if you use the wrong pronoun when referring to a transgender person, uh, that's not simply regarded as a, a harmless slip of the tongue or a harmless personal preference. That's regarded as a denial of their identity. It's, it's the equivalent, if you like, in terms of the moral register of using a racial epithet. You know, what is a racial epithet? It's a way really of denying somebody's full identity, full humanity, full equality with you. Pronouns are coming to function in the same way. So to go to the cake baker case, there's a sense in which the cake baker thinks he's not harming the gay couple by simply refusing to bake a cake for a wedding. He's, he'll bake a cake for them for anything else, but he won't bake a cake for a wedding because the way he thinks about the world, that is sanctioning something of which he morally disapproves. What the gay couple experiences, this person is denying our legitimacy 
in terms of how we think of ourselves. So you have this sort of clash of worldviews, this clash of uh, or, or sort of massive miscommunication, if you like, between the two groups. I want to continue this thread, but it occurred to me as you said that, doesn't that almost underscore then the significance of the cake baker doing what he does or even potentially uh, underscore the significance of someone using uh, the correct pronouns rather than the ones imposed upon? I mean, in other words, if it is freighted with all of this acceptance, then doesn't it mean that that might be where the line would need to be drawn or or, or would you see that differently? You could certainly make that case. I think that that would be a legitimate conclusion to draw from that. I would inject the sort of the pastoral caveat at this point on the grounds that there may be specific circumstances in dealing with an individual where you may adopt a slightly different strategy or a different strategy entirely in order to gain some ground in your conversation with them. So I wouldn't want to sort of generalize and universalize at this point in every single case. Uh, but I think uh, making the point that this is somewhere where one should certainly think very seriously about, is this where the line should be drawn? Definitely, that's the case. Whether I would make it into a moral right. imperative. For example, if I'm trying to talk somebody off a bridge that are about to jump to their death, yeah, I might in that situation adopt a different strategy of speaking to them than I would adopt, say, in the classroom or in the pub or something like that. So that's, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like a compromiser at this point. I just want to be yeah. wary of saying every no, no, circumstance no, but it, conceivable. It, it just struck me that both the cake baker and the couple coming in both see it as a highly freighted statement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't, you, you can't sit on the sidelines and say, no, no, actually, it doesn't really matter. Both agree that it matters. Yeah. The use of uh, pronouns is a speech act. It's doing something. It's not merely saying something. Uh, and I think that's where the, the issue needs to be addressed. Well, this is the end of part one of our interview with Dr. Carl Truman about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We will be releasing part two when our next show drops, but we thank you for listening to part one. We hope it's whetted your appetite to listen more and also to look up this book. It is a very, I think, important book and helpful book, uh, and and it, it, it goes into much greater detail than we'll, we're able to do even in these uh, two interviews. If you'd like to enter for an opportunity to win this book, you can go to placefortruth.org click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a, a spot there for you to enter your information and possibly win a copy of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you have feedback for us, please send it to us. Um, we, we would encourage you to, to give us your suggestions uh, for ways that we can be helpful. If you think this, there's someone else who would be helped by either this episode or other episodes, please pass along the link to them. And as always, from James and myself, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. 
The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that Word with those who are lost and encouraging the Church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at AllianceNet.org support. That's AllianceNet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.